0: Welcome to the official As
1: Began podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Noisley.
0: Hi, girls. Hi, guys. We're back again with the Journal Club and with Dr. Andreas Jenke. Andreas has chosen for us today three articles. Maybe that's because we're changing the process a bit. We're taking articles from the most recent number of JPGN, which by the time this appears will be the July number, and we're skipping over the June issue. So rather than the usual two, we're dealing with three. The first one, titled Risk Factors of Cancer in Pediatric Onset Inflammatory Bowel Disease in Denmark and Finland, is one of the beautifully beautifully packaged, tied with a bow, studies that we can expect from the Scandinavian countries it compares incidences of malignancy both inflammation related and possibly treatment related in patients in Denmark and Finland with age-matched inflammatory bowel disease controls and I've f- I found it a pleasure to read and it had a surprising, at least to me, conclusion that may be relevant to your patients. Andreas, take it away. Yeah, um, nice, nice summary,
1: Alex, as always. If you read these papers from Scandinavian countries, you always get envied about these large population databases they can use. And um, But on the other side, we should be grateful that they come up with these data and demonstrating particular risk factors or changing the direction how we th- see or,
0: or interpreted things um, in the future. So, Let me flesh that out just a bit. They studied 6,700 kids with, with pediatric inflammatory bowel disease over a nearly 25-year period. Yeah,
1: that's oh. right. And, yeah, that's right. And um, they, they, they basically study a whole population. And this is what's so valuable about these papers. And I mean, they found a little bit less than 1% of um, malignancy in this cohort over this period of around 20 years. And um, they tried to figure out what are risk factors for the development of these cancers in this particular population, because this is always a concern for the treating physician um, regarding the, the grade of inflammation as a potential risk factor for, for disease or malignancy development and on the other hand the immunosuppressive therapy. And um, they looked at two different kind of malignancy, so disease associated. So this is basically like a colorectal carcinoma or cholangiocarcinoma or adenocarcinoma of the colon. so every diseases which can be explained by in vitro ex-
0: experiments based on chronic inflammation. I want to point out here, though, that in the cholangiocarcinoma group, they didn't have a single instance of autoimmune and cholangitis. Just as, ho, oh, what's up with that? One more, but back you go. And then they had the non-disease-associated, the non-DAC cases. They had the TAC cases so what does T stand for
1: yeah T is just treatment associated cancer and this is usually um skin cancer and any kind of lymphoproliferative dis- disorder like as lymphoma basically mm-hmm. so and um they they had something a little bit um more than 50 unfortunately they were not able to track all these um, patients so they ended up eventually with uh, 16 disease-associated cancers and 21 treatment-associated cancers. And they matched this with another cohort of a little more than 300 pediatric IBD without any cancer development. And um, then they had a follow-up of all the patients, mean follow-up of around um, 10 years. And um, what's quite interesting is, again, That thiopurines, like like ethosiaprin, obviously has a substantial risk for or being associated with um, treatment associated cancer. So they found an 11 fold increased risk for this um, cancer development if you ever have been treated with um, thiopurines. God forbid yeah <laughs> and and on the other hand, they also found a correlation between the the time period you've been treated with these and the risk for cancer development. The I longer mean, the worse, have, right? Yes, the longer you've been treated, the higher um is your risk but it, it's important that we try to um better understand the importance of this data so first of all, the confidence interval is quite large, ranging from two. To I think 110. So so this is because of the low number of patients. So we do not know where we end up with the with a risk. So it could be just a two-fold risk, but it could be even higher, like 20, 30, 40 times higher.
0: In a practical basis, what's the difference? If you've if you've been given thiopurines, then you refer the kid to a dermatology clinic and have them gone over, or. Yeah, of
1: course you should do that. But, um, I mean, if you, you, you need to think about, um, also not the individual risk or, or mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. Indiv- individual problem, but also, um, you think about the whole population. So, okay. um, for example, usually between the age of 20 and 30, the risk to develop a lymphoma in this age group is four to a hundred thousand. So mm-hmm. if we have an increase in risk by tenfold, this means for for such a society that we have 36 more lymphoma patients every year, which Mm -hmm. is quite substantial, I would say,
0: sure, sure. So
1: this is important. And on the other hand, they could not found or they did not found any association between cancer development and biologics. So at the moment, most of the physicians say look we start with um, with the thiopurines they are not that bad it's it's not so strong treatment and if it does not work we go over to the to the biologicals so and this is also how this is perceived in the in the press in the public so most parents come to me and say oh biologics they are very strong very dangerous but if you look or if you Think about this the, the data. Maybe we need to change our view on that. In particular, if you consider that in Crohn's disease, only 20% of the patients are stable in remission on thiopurines. So, a very low number of patients. So, is it really worth trying these medications anymore in these patients? I think we just need to start
0: thinking about that. How long follow up have we had with biologics? I mean, in this study, or or just just overall, how long have we been using thiopurines, and how long have we been using biologics? I'm ignorant. I don't have the answer. But well, have we followed the biologics out long enough to see if they have um, unpleasant side effects?
1: Well. Probably for sure, they have unpleasant side side effects. Oh, I mean so, in terms of malignancy, of, of course. Okay. So, so and there's always the discussion um, that there might be an association to malignancy with the um, biologics. So this started um, late in the last century. So, okay. So we do not have this long time period as we have with the appearance as follow-up, but I would say we have at least twenty years. And um, I would have assumed or expected that in this cohort, which was from from the late 90s to the early twenty first century, that we probably could get some some idea on the effect of biologics on the development on malignancy.
0: I take your point. Well, that's interesting, but you haven't hit the thing that surprised me, and that was that uh the better your inflammatory bowel disease is controlled the greater your risk of um developing cancer that's that's the enteric mucosa and bile duct associated cancers yeah at first glance um
1: this might be surprising but um you're not surprised you did... well i was surprised but i can give you an explanation for that so or at I can hypothesize something, yeah, Um possibility. So it depends um, if you follow up your patients, what are you aiming for? Are you mm. aiming for clinical remission? So that means bowel movement is OK, no belly pain, um, the patient is developing fine, or do you really aim for mucosal healing? So mm. do you really check
0: hmm.
1: fecal inflammatory markers regularly? like fecal cal- cal- protecting or so so okay. if you don't do that so it might be that you have a lot of patients in clinical remission but with a low grade of um, mucosal inflammation which then eventually will turn into into malignancy
0: so that's that's a lovely interpretation what about the possibly more drastic one that uh, that is that the better you impair the function of the immune system with regard to maintaining inflammation, the the further you dampen that down, then you also at the same time dampen the immune system's ability to conduct surveillance and to knock out mini tumors before they become maxi tumors.
1: Yeah, this is a very good explanation as well. It's a little bit more concerning, I have to say. But um, if you think about the effect of checkpoint inhibitors, um, Mm -hmm. it it sounds very reasonable that this um, might be also true. So I I think we need to keep sharp eye on this. So whether this inflammation is really the cause or whether they dampen down immune system might be associated with the development of um, disease associated malignancies.
0: Fair enough. We have to hurry along, unfortunately. You've given us a jam-packed, fun-filled afternoon. And the next one is um, prevalence of elevated ALT in adolescents in the U.S. 2011-2018 from the group out in San Diego, California, that has made the biggest fuss, so far as I can remember, about pediatric fatty liver disease. That's the Schwimmer group. What do you make of, um, well, Andreas, I have to tell you, when somebody starts to talk about Asians as a subgroup in a population and doesn't differentiate Koreans from people from the Punjab, I start to think, how am I going to make any sense of this? So that, cards on the table, first off. hmm. Um, (laughs) This is
1: some kind of European arrogance, I would say. So hey, I'm sorry, us? I mean, I'm European, I can do that, so so, okay, okay. Um, so, I think, yeah, it's a good point. You, you cannot necessarily compare someone from South Korea to someone from India, which India mm-hmm. is also Asian, so mm-hmm. um, so I think this is a problem, but um, from my point of view, this is not the main focus of this study.
0: So, no, no, okay.
1: <clears throat> I mean, if you read this this study, you get the impression that, I mean, almost everyone in these states has elevated um, liver enzymes, and this is uh, is an ongoing pandemic which ends up in a disaster.
0: Does it? And I, I want to, you want to run and scream. You want to run in circles. You want to scream and shout. Yes, um.
1: <laughs> but I mean, I, I think. The the message of the authors is important on the one hand, but on the other hand, there are some things I see in some way a little bit critical. So first of all, I mean they take thresholds of liver enzymes like twenty and twenty-six, very mm-hmm. low. So this might be arguably too low. And, and those um,
0: were from those data were from Schwimmer's group, his reference number six, gastroenterology. He's the one who said that alanine aminotransferase cutoff values are too high to detect pediatric chronic liver disease. I agree,
1: but I necessarily do not share his his opinion. So okay. I think it might overestimate the problem. So there is basically there is a real problem, of course, but if you if you take this data serious, so even the healthy non-obese children in the U.S have an have a prevalence of almost 10% of elevated um, liver enzymes. And I think this makes possibly healthy children sick.
0: Mm -hmm. I think this is Mm -hmm. not
1: not the way we should, um, we should perform medicine from my personal point of view. But on the other hand, I mean, there is a large number of obese patients which has elevated liver enzymes. And I think this is even, this is more important. Like in the obesity group, more than 5%, something between 5 and 10% has elevated liver enzymes 10, 10 times the the upper normal limit. So this is, this is a serious problem. So of the obese, you probably have 10% with um, NAFLD. So, ALT, well, twice the
0: upper limit of normal is what they yes. say. Yeah. yeah, 10% of Hispanics, so, 63 yeah. 6. of whites, yeah. 56 of Asians, whatever they are, and 33 yeah. of blacks. But that's with the 2XULN. On the yeah. other hand, it's very difficult to sort out from his text, from this group's text, whether they're talking about 2XALN or just ALN as they're cut off for declaring somebody. Yeah, this is a little bit huh. cloudy and um,
1: not easy to follow. So um, you definitely need some time to read it. So from my point of view, it clearly demonstrates we have a problem. So um, the problem is mainly, again, from my point of view, in the bees population. And we should take it serious. But on the other hand, we should not start making possibly healthy kids
0: sick. Let's so, just say that let's just say that the San Diego group has presented interesting information that clearly call for more funding and increased research.
1: Yeah, nicely summarized. <laughs> so I think we need to move forward. Um,
0: <laughs> liver disease and GLIS3 mutations. Transplant considerations and bile duct paucity on explant histology from a group in Birmingham in the UK. Ooh, um, well, this didn't this this paper didn't have me quite wanting to kick the cat, but I, I am really fascinated as to why you thought this is worth discussing.
1: So first of all, I think um, for every clinician, it is important um, that we think about new diseases, that we perceive new diseases, new pathophysiological mechanisms. And I mean, it's a a nice presentation of two cases on this um, glyph-3 mutation, neonatal diabetes with um, with, um, hypothyroidism, kidney disease, which um, eventually also has some severe liver problem. And I mean, if you screen, if you have a baby with neonatal diabetes and you do a next generation sequencing, you should make sure that this gene is included in the panel. So I think it's important that we, as ordering physicians, have an idea what we are ordering. So we need to know what we are looking for, what we are
0: searching for. Okay, and that's is, a, That's a message for your endocrinology colleagues, yes? What about for us in GI? Yeah. I mean, it's it's not
1: not so so much um, for for the endocrinology guys. It's more for the neonatologists because uh-huh. they pick up uh-huh. the neonatal diabetes. Um, sure. So, and I would guess that they 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 probably they contact early on the endocrinologist and maybe even even the um, the gastroenterologist because these babies uh-huh. also have quite often elevated um, um, liver enzymes and hyperbilirubinemia. So it's just, just read it and and remember the, the, the cases so that if you have a kid like that, you think about ordering this specific genetic testing. On the other hand, I mean, I wasn't quite sure about the Histopathological pictures I've seen. I'm not I'm an expert in this field, so and I was um, quite surprised by by the um, conclusions the authors draw from these two cases. And I wanted to ask you, what's your expert opinion on this? Is can we just say that glyph three obviously is important for biodeck development, and that these authors might have found a new
0: pathophysiological explanation for this disease? Well, you certainly can't tell that from the paper. I was badly disposed toward the paper from the moment I read the title, when they talk about explant histology. Using the word histology to refer to histopathologic findings or histopathologic study is jargonous, it's a barbarism, and it means that somebody wasn't paying attention simply to the use of language. Then you get into the case reports. We have... Two kids, one of whom comes to liver transplantation aged six years after presenting at five months with high gamma-GT cholestasis, and another one who comes to liver transplantation at 17 months after presentation, maybe at age two months, with high gamma-GT intrahepatic cholestasis. We are not told if initial liver biopsy was performed. We are not told initial liver biopsy showed, we are presented only with instances of end-stage liver disease of material removed at hepatectomy, and it should be everybody's common fund of knowledge that with an inflammatory cholangiopathy, high gamma GT, you lose your bile ducts. An end-stage biliary atresia liver at explantation has Too few bile ducts because they've been eaten up, chewed up, and spit out. So the idea of calling this paucity of bile ducts is absolutely beyond me. If you're going to tag a patient with cholestasis on that basis, then do it when the patient presents and not after end-stage liver disease has messed up the biliary system beyond repair. I know of at least two inflammatory cholangiopathies that are at the moment ranked as forms of neonatal sclerosing cholangitis, ZFY519 um, disease and DCDC2 disease. Both of those are associated with, uh, with changes that include the ductal plate malformation. The ductal plate malformation is not a matter of bile ducts alone. Ductal plate malformation is a matter of hypoplasia of the intrahepatic portal venous system. These patients developed portal hypertension, but was it due to fibrosis? Was it due to scarring? No, look at their figure three, where they label an artery as more than four times as large in cross-sectional area as what they label as a portal venule but they make no mention of that. They say that the findings were not suggestive of ductal plate malformation. I think that ductal plate malformation screams from the page, but that they didn't recognize it, and that ductal plate malformation after long-term inflammation and extinction of bile ducts looks exactly like this, at least in the DCDC2 and the Z519, ZFYVE19 patients whose livers I've been able to examine. I am remarkably surprised that the, I am dismayed that the conclusion, bile duct and explant histology has now entered the, the searchable, the findable, the, in, the literature that in a few years, no doubt will come to be part of a list of conditions to be considered in bile duct paucity. We're never going to be able to weed that out. Well, I mean,
1: this clearly shows it's always important that you critically read the papers and have your own opinion. And if you're not sure, like like I was, you need to ask an expert whether he can give you additional
0: insights. Andreas, You abash me. I should have been emotionally better controlled. Oh, well, Um, I'm turning into a grumpy old man. And and I guess I kind of enjoyed it for five minutes, but I'll try to do better. So, Alex, you are not a grumpy old man.
1: On the contrary, you still have the enthusiasm to go into these discussion with with all your heart. And I think this is important. And I hope that we will have more of this discussion in the future with the next episode on our podcast, the August issue, which um, will also then be highlighted in the table of content in the August number of
0: JPGN. So, Alex. Well, I do have I do have one last thing to say, and that is for those of you out there who are listening and who happen to have a kid with GLI. IS3 mutations among your patients, write into JPGN, give us a letter to the editor saying this is what we see on initial biopsy. That's still a point of considerable interest, and I look forward to reading those letters in the months to come.
1: Thank you very much for listening. See you next time. See
0: you.